and welcome to the Steampunk Dollhouse. My name is Blue Stocking, and I will be your librarian and your host for the next hour or so. If you are a returning listener, you have my absolute eternal thanks and all of my gratitude for continuing to tune in, for coming back after that weird and unplanned hiatus. Uh, but if this is your first time in the Dollhouse, then please come in, have a seat, and get comfortable. Uh, But please do be aware that this show does contain a shit ton of spoilers. Um, It's it's a necessity in discussing the books. So if that is going to be an issue, then please turn back now and read the books and then come back. I will be here. Well, (laughs) it's been a crazy two months, hasn't it? Uh, It's been two months. Last one, well, I guess the last real episode was the Emily Barton episode back in November, so it's been a while. It's been a while since I posted. A lot of shit's happened. First and foremost, I hope you all listened to and enjoyed the crossover episode with Texas Steampunk Connection, but I do need to make an apology to Flavio for mispronouncing his name because I mispronounce names all the time because that's how I roll. It's Flavio Foz with Texas Steampunk Connection, and I had a really good time with that interview. Um, (laughs) The festival itself, the Wild West Victorian Fest in Kerrville, Texas, was interesting. Um, I think it was just a perfect storm of new event and really shitty, shitty weather, um... But I think it could be something really special. It just it needs some time, and it it really, really needs better weather. Um, that day was... I don't know what Sunday was like, but I do know the day that we were there, that Saturday, it was... Oh, my God, it was cold. I think it was 40 degrees, maybe, and drizzly and windy, so that made it even worse. There was no sunshine at all. Um, and... So much of it was outside. So many of the merchants were outside. Now, there was a big, almost, it was almost like a hangar or a warehouse space, or I don't know, an exhibit hall, maybe. And they did have some of the merchants in there, and some of the musical acts were in there, the shows, and then that's where the Queen's Tea was. Um, but the size of that building, it's what, like we talked about on the, uh, the crossover, the size of that building, they probably could have just moved everybody in there. Because the merchants outside were very spread out, very far apart, and it was just, it was a miserable day to be moving around out there. Um, But the next day, Sunday, as we were driving back to Denton, 
Uh, Kerrville, I think the weather was in the 60s, so hopefully Sunday was better for them. Um, but, you know, needs a little work, but I think they could have something really special. Uh, it was interesting. It, it was fun despite the weather, and Baby Stocking had a fantastic time. Uh, she's quite enjoying the steampunk convention, so we are going to keep doing that. Um, but again, I hope you enjoyed the interview with Steampunk Connection. Uh, Flavio was is a real good guy. We had a lot of fun. Just kind of sat there and observed everything that was going on. Um, but that's also part of what we're trying to do. Um, some of us, you know, Texas Steampunk Connection, uh, Steamrollers, Clockwork Cabaret. We're trying to do some more cross promotion and work together uh, with each other to get these out there. And so many of the steam, the steampunk shows now, the, the the ones that are gaining more ground, were all so very different that I think that that will help. Um, you know, Steampunk Connection does the festivals around in and around Texas, and they do books and movie reviews as well and music. Um, but they're largely about the community in and around Texas. And then, you know, Clockwork Cabaret, obviously, um, with the music, the... Not always what can technically be classified as steampunk, but it still fits and it works. And then, of course, steamrollers uh, with <laughs> the ongoing steampunk role-playing game, um, which never fails to entertain. So there's, you know, and then we're pulling in some others, some of the dramas like, you know, Portentous Perils and Sage and Savant. Um, gallery of curiosities uh, with their short stories so we're trying to trying to get them all in there and, and get everybody working together and, and see what we can do with that um kind of a steampunk podcast collective um so we'll see what happens now <laughs> moving on to we're gonna lightly touch on the politics in this episode because it's just god what the hell um once again White women continue. White women of my demographic, my age group, um, continue to show that they have absolutely no idea how to protect their own interests by showing up to vote for Roy Moore in Alabama in numbers that are just appalling and horrifying. Um, and the, and obviously he did not win. And what came out of that, and part of the reason that he did not win, and large, the big part of the reason that he did not win, is that. Um, Black women showed up in droves. African-American women showed up in droves to vote for Jones. Um, And that is amazing. But we also cannot... the, the, The overall feeling on Twitter seemed to be that the African-American women saved the day and they came in and they saved it and... That's not something that should be counted on or expected. They are not here. African-American women do not exist to save our asses. Um, They are not magical. We are not in an uplifting movie. And it is not their job to save the stupid white women who don't know how to vote for their own interests. Um, That's bullshit. (sighs) And I keep trying to understand why this kind of voting, especially in a place like Alabama and the women that are, I don't want to say that, I'm sorry, not the women that tended to vote for Moore and for Trump still cling to, are are part of that, that subordinate Christian atmosphere of voting this way because your man votes this way or voting this way because, you know, feminazis 
abortion, lesbian, whatever. Roy Moore doesn't like women. Um, Roy Moore didn't believe that women should... <laughs> he didn't believe that women should be lawyers or judges. Roy Moore didn't believe that white women should be voting, or any women should be voting. Um, so all of those white women that went and cast votes for Roy Moore, just understand that he doesn't even think you should have that right. Um... And there's this throwback idea, I know, when women got the vote, and, you know, especially in the 40s and 50s, you would hear about women that just automatically voted for who their husbands voted for. And when women got the right to vote, essentially, men got two two votes. It wasn't that women got the right to vote, it was that their husbands got two votes. That's bullshit, and that is a throwback idea, and this is 2018 now. Um, women... You need to fucking vote for your own interests. You need to take care of yourselves. You need to stand up for yourselves. And you need to realize that it is your job to protect yourself. It is your right. It is your responsibility to protect yourself. Men are not here to protect us. That is a patriarchal idea that needs to be scraped off. Protect your own ass. Take care of yourself. (laughs) There is no excuse not to. There is no reason not to. You have a responsibility. It is your life. They are your rights. Defend them. Enough with the bullshit. Moving on. I don't even know what to say about Trump. Um, (laughs) I have no fucking clue what to say about Trump. The whole thing is just... I don't know. It would be funny if it wasn't so horrifying. Um, Every day is something new. And, you know, I've said this before, when I started the show, I you know, started it with the whole, you know, fictional theme of, you know, hiding in an underground bunker. And I, you know, the, the more and more that he keeps poking at North Korea, the more and more it seems like that bunker might be a good idea. Um, I don't even fucking know with that shit. So we'll move on. Um, some things that were wonderful. Uh, the Last Jedi was wonderful. Bring it. Fight me. Say what you want. I don't care. It was amazing. Um, Laura Dern is my president. (laughs) Alta is my president. Um, Jodie Whittaker has regenerated into the doctor, which is amazing. I cannot wait for that. Um, And I... Again, you know, you can you can you can come at me on this one, but I actually love if that outfit that we've been seeing in the promo photos is what she's going to be wearing with the suspenders and everything. I fucking love it, and all of these douchebags that were on Twitter saying this is the most ridiculous, this is this is horrible, this is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen. Who came up with this outfit? Let's all remember that there was a doctor that wore celery on his lapel. So yeah, there is no more ridiculous doctor. No one outfit is worse than any other. They're all unique. They're all different. They're all a little silly. They're all very special. I I think she's going to do I think she's going to do a good job. I mean, Matt Smith was completely, you know, was relatively unknown when he became the doctor. He was very young. Nobody knew what was going to happen. And he turned out to be incredibly popular and did a very good job. So, the people that are bitching and moaning, pretty sure it's just because she's a chick. And again, fuck that shit. Ocean's 8. I'm also excited about this. Full of the women's. Um, (laughs) 
men are going monkey shit on Twitter about all of these women up in their shit, and I love it. I love it. Because uh, guess what? It doesn't ruin anything. Um, Ocean's 8, first of all, or Ocean's 11, first of all, the George Clooney series was already a remake. Now, it was a remake of a dude film, but it's still, it was a remake. So I can't help but think that all of the complaints about the female reboots are because they're female reboots, and that's it. I mean, if Ghostbusters had been redone with men, would would, would there have been as much complaining? Probably not, uh, because everything's being getting rebooted the fuck out of it, and nobody's complaining until it's an all-female cast of a previously all... What I want to see, I want to see an all-female A-team. Oh my god, that would be amazing. So, get over it. Um, Diversity is not a bad thing. (laughs) Which is something that we have discussed on this show before. Uh, We all want to see ourselves represented on the screen. And white people, and white men, overwhelmingly, are the ones that have been represented on the screen from the beginning. We all want to see ourselves. We all want to picture ourselves. And the same goes for books. That's why, you know, the We Need Diverse Books became such a big movement. Everybody deserves to see themselves and picture themselves in a character, in a role, in a hero. This is not a bad thing. This is not a buzzword. This is not virtue signaling. This is not social justice warriors. Diversity is not a bad thing because we all need to be able to see ourselves and picture ourselves as the, you know, the cowboys or the princesses or the princes or the astronauts or the space pirates or whatever the the fuck it's going to be, you know, the, the, the fighter pilot in space. I mean, it's everyone deserves to see themselves represented. That is not bad. That doesn't take away from anyone else. It doesn't mean that white men will get less. White men have always gotten more. And white men, white women, a step below that. So complaining about diversity is... It's reached a level where, it, like I said, it's, it's become that buzzword that everybody hates to hear. And I don't understand why, because it's just giving everyone a chance. It's giving young African-American girls a chance to see themselves as the destined savior and hero. Why is that bad? Tell me. If you can, if you can tell me why that is a bad thing, I want to know. I want to hear it. Find me on Twitter or Facebook. Bring it to me. Why you think that that is a bad thing? Like complaints about the Wrinkle in Time movie. I am so excited about that movie, I can't even stand it. But there have been bitching and moaning and complaints, because that's the way it is. Um, Hunger Games, Rue. (laughs) I honestly, when I read those books, I never pictured her as anything else. I assumed that she was African-American. That's just the way the character was written in the description. I assumed that that's what she was, but that freak out when she was cast was insane. And... Yeah, there are some corners of Twitter you should never wander into. Um, So, anyway, the whole point being, diversity is not a bad thing. Stop making it a bad thing. It is a good thing. We all deserve to get a little piece of the action. (laughs) Like everybody, I speak. I can't remember what what person on Twitter said it said it from the beginning or said it initially, but it's not pie. 
it's their rights. It's it's equal rights. It's not pie. You're not going to get less because somebody else gets more. It's not the way it works. Blah. Okay. So <laughs> now moving on to my next uh, over the break rant. The idea of escapism is bad, or uh, escapism is okay, and, you know, stop making it political, stop making steampunk political, um, seems to crop up over and over again. I don't know, maybe it's just because it's on my radar, so I see it more. But just, I know, I think I've I've reiterated this on more than one occasion, but I'm okay with escapism. (laughs) I've had people say this to me. It's okay. I know it's okay. I don't have a problem with... Reading for pure pleasure and enjoyment. There's a reason that I spent a good portion of the break re- renewing myself with The Vampire Chronicles by Anne Rice. Pure escapism. <laughs> I don't read those for political commentary. I read them because it's an escape. There's nothing wrong with that. I just chose to use steampunk as a tool for dissecting social commentary. That's it. That's the show that I started. That's what I want to talk about. If you don't read steampunk for that, that's cool. That's okay. Uh, I don't care. I mean, no, that's not the way to say it. I think that it can be used for a lot of things, obviously, and I've said that before, and that's the whole purpose of the show. But if you want to read it differently, that's fine. That is fine. If you don't want to look into the deeper issues of it, I get it. That's fine, too. Um, I'm not saying that this is how it should be, that everybody should be doing it this way. I'm saying that it can be done this way. That was the whole purpose of this, that it can be used for this, not that it has to be. Um, But I also, I don't think that there's anything wrong with using steampunk to look at, you know, politics and the state of the world today. It's a literary tool. It's science fiction. It's going to be political. But if you don't want to see that 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 side of it, then don't don't see it. Read and enjoy and experience new worlds and have a good time. I am down with that completely. Um, the other thing that popped up now this when I didn't when I shared it on the Dollhouse page, I didn't realize at the time because I, I read the article, but I didn't notice the date. And there was an article about. Um, why I hate steampunk. Um, it's an old article. It's from a few years ago. Like I said, I didn't realize that at the time. But um, I am also okay with the fact that steampunk is, to a certain extent, and has been for about 10 years, A, it became a pop culture fad. It became a pop culture phenomenon. You know, they were selling steampunk stuff, you know, goggles and corsets in Hot Topic. Um it bothered me a little at first because that was 10 years ago. I was younger. Um, I had a different attitude. But now, love what you love and don't worry about other people, what other people say, whether people say that it's just a fad, you're only doing it because other people are doing it. Just love what you love and don't apologize for it. And yeah, you know, it's popular right now and it will eventually fade as all pop culture things do. It will go into, you know, back into the the wardrobe or the trunk or wherever. But the people that love it will still love it, just like the people that still love, you know, disco will still love disco, even though it's not popular anymore. Or, you know, whatever the hell else. It Shit comes and goes. And at this point, 
there's not really anything new anymore. I mean, every genre has been written. Every, every genre of music has been written. Every genre of book has been written. Every genre of movie has been made. You know, fashion, if you look at what people are wearing now, people are wearing things from all time periods over the, you know, every decade of what the last 150 years. So there is nothing new. Everything is being done. And it's almost like all of, (laughs) not to have a Dr. Who moment, but all of history is happening all at once now as far as pop culture goes. And that's okay. Love what you love and embrace it and enjoy it and hold it to you. And yeah, when steampunk fades, the true lovers will still be there. They will still be hanging on to it. Um, you know, and keeping the flame alive and it will come back into prominence and then it will fade again, just like anything else does. That's okay. Um, that's just the way it works. And on to... Uh, this, I just wanted to mention, this isn't a rant. Wow, this intro is going long. This may be a long episode just because I had so much stuff to cover. Because <laughs> that have been gone for a while. Um, something that I wanted to... Um, well, first of all, let me cover the king in yellow. Yeah, I'm lazy. Uh, I don't know if you guys have realized that about me over <laughs> the last almost year. Or however long I've been doing this. But I am super lazy. Um, and especially over, like, the Christmas holidays... Um, Something I've noticed since I've been in school, uh, it doesn't really happen so much with summer vacation, but Christmas vacation, I tend to shut down. Um, I kind of go away. You know, I still haven't, I still have notifications for Twitter and Facebook turned off on my, on all my devices. I just, I kind of shut down and just enjoy the, the winter months and, you know, the, family and just trying to get through and, you know, mental health issues and the weird schedules and the weird eating schedules that we have. And so I kind of go into my own little space. Um, and part of that involves turning off my computer and not really looking at it a whole lot. So I did not get around to doing the King in Yellow, obviously. So I'm going to, I've got to get back on the horse because school starts soon, not Monday, but the Monday after, so, or Tuesday actually after, so I've got to get back on my horse and get shit done, so I am going to try to to find, and it's not even like it's going to take me that long, it's just a matter of sitting my butt down and doing it, so I will get that done next week. Um, Speaking of school, if you follow me on Twitter at all, um, then you know that I did super fantastically on a project for one of my classes. Uh, As you know, I am a library school student. In my collection development class, um, we had to do... We had to develop a collection of... There was no limit on the number of items, but we had to spend $2,000, theoretical $2,000. We had to have eight different formats, and that means print ebook audio um i used dvds and streaming movies um i also used a podcast and not my podcast because that just felt weird um (laughs) uh and then journals and a database that i used well what i was going to say is um I compiled everything together. I had 62 different items on my list. I spent just a hair under $2,000. I made a perfect A on it, a 35 out of 35. Um, And if you know this class and the professor, I 
think that's pretty darn good. Um, it was not an easy project. But because what we had to do for this project, we had to provide every item that we put on this list. This isn't just a list of my favorite steampunk shit. It had to, everything that went on this list had to have two valid reasons, and the valid reasons had to be from what she had listed for us. Um, they had to have, you know, good reviews. They had to have won awards. Um, they had to be considered a core work, a, you know, a core author or a key publisher or something in that nature. Um, or be part of a particular list or an existing list already. And my what my goal was with this project, my focus was to create a steampunk, a core steampunk collection for an academic library to be used for study. Um, because more papers are being written about steampunk now, more people are looking at it, and you know, more books are, more academic books are being written about it. So I thought, and my school library does not really have much at all. I think we have maybe two or three. We have one academic book and like two of the fiction and that's it. So I built this collection based off of my school library of what an academic, what a student, a history student or a literature student could use to do a research paper about steampunk and the various aspects of it. And the list that I built, I tried to make it as multicultural and diverse as possible um, and as extensive as possible given the the parameters that I had to work within, and I actually, I'm really, really proud of it. Uh, I think it came out really well, and my professor actually suggested that I publish it, um, but I've got to figure, I missed the deadline on the thing I was going to publish it for, um, so I'm going to try to figure out how I'm supposed to get something like this published. Um, I probably have to write a research paper around it, which is fine, because I kind of did that already for one of my other classes. Um, but the whole point of me telling you all of this is not just to toot my own horn, um, but if you are interested in seeing it, it I, I don't want to publish it on the website right now. I was going to put it on my website, but because I want to try to get it published, I want to hang on to it. Um, so if you would be interested in seeing this scholarly steampunk collection that I created, it's in a spreadsheet on Google Drive um, that I can send me a message to the steampunk dollhouse at gmail.com um, and then I'll, I'll work it out from there. I can share it with you. Um, it's under my uh, it's under another login, but I can share it with you so that you can see what I did if you're curious about it to see the kind of cre- uh, collection that I created. And then eventually maybe I'll get it published. But that's why I don't want to actually put it out there um, openly on the web right now. just because I want to kind of hang on to it until I can figure out what to do with it. Um, but I think I did a really good job. So, you know, if you want to see it, steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com. Just put scholarly steampunk collection in the subject line. And uh, I'll see about getting it sent over to you. And finally, I want to, I don't have a promo to run for her, or I would, um, so that's why I'm just talking about it. I wanted to direct you over to StoryPunks. It's a new podcast by Cindy Grigg. It's all the punks, and she's not kidding, it really is all the punks. Um, steampunk, cyberpunk, solarpunk, ecopunk, um, there's more, there's a whole bunch more. But she interviews authors, um... And in in she interviews, you know, she'll t- pick a, a particular punk and interview an author who has written within that punk genre. Um, they're good interviews. She is 
really, really cool. Uh, I've actually gotten to know her quite <laughs> well, not quite well. I know her so well. I've gotten to know her uh, relatively well over the last week or so, and the reasons for that will become apparent um, sometime in the future. Um, there will be an announcement about that shortly. But she's she's a cool person. Uh, she's funny. She's really smart. Um, she asked some good questions. And... She left me a really nice review on iTunes, so, you know, I'm, I'm kind of partial to her now. But um, go check her out, StoryPunks Podcast. It's on iTunes and all the podcatchers, and I have a link for the website in the show notes because she actually records, uh, she, she uh, video records the interviews and posts them on her website. Um, so go check her out, listen to her show. She is pretty freaking cool, uh, and I like her. So, that was almost 30 minutes of me rambling and ranting um, about what is probably amounts to <laughs> bullshit, but that is that. So, we are going to get on to um, Kenley Yu's Dandelion Dynasty series. Up next, first I am going to do my usual promos run some audible for you and then we will get into part one where i will proceed to butcher words to the best of my ability so stay tuned and i will be right back this week's episode of the steampunk dollhouse is brought to you by audible.com Get a free audiobook download at www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. This week, I recommend The Grace of Kings by Ken Liu, the recipient of Hugo, Nebula, and World Fantasy Awards. In The Grace of Kings, two men rebel together against tyranny and then become rivals in this first sweeping book of an epic fantasy series. Fans of intrigue, intimate plots, and action will find a new series to embrace in the Dandelion Dynasty. Visit www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod to download The Grace of Kings or any one of Audible's 180,000 titles. That's www.audibletrial.com slash spdhpod. All right, literary listeners, let's get started. Today... We are discussing the Dandelion Dynasty series by Ken Liu. That's The Grace of Kings and The Wall of Storms, and there will be a third one coming out um, sometime soon. But these books are big. They are long. They are packed full of information. There's so much stuff. So uh, I'm assuming it probably... Oh, let's see. Yeah, um... I'm looking here, and actually the next thing he had coming out, or the most recent thing he had, was a Legends of Luke Skywalker uh, this year, because he also, he writes a lot of stuff. He doesn't just write um, these novels. He's done so many short stories, so, so many. Um, but part of the reason I think that it took me so long to get this done is because he's one of those authors that I find very intimidating, um, not for any particular reason, not anything that he has said or done the reason that I find him so intimidating um when I run across anyone my age that's or younger that is so accomplished it's you know it kind of throws me a little bit he um he actually he's Chinese American uh he came here when he was 11 years old and he actually 
he got a, a bachelor's in English um, from Harvard and then worked in technology and then got his Juris Doctorate at Harvard Law School and went into tax law and then decided to switch um, and became a litigation consultant in technology cases so that he could use both his, his legal and his technology skills. And he writes stories and books on the side. So, you know, I'm, I find that very impressive. Um, I think it's wonderful. And he also works as a translator. Um, He's won multiple awards, and if you listen to LeVar Burton Reads, which I highly recommend anyway, it's like reading Rainbow for grown-ups, it's wonderful, uh, he actually reads one of um, uh, Ken's short stories on there, uh, The Paper Menagerie. Um, he reads The Paper Menagerie on there in one of the episodes um, from this last year, so I highly recommend go look it up, listen to it, um, and then also get these books, and let's get started. Now... This these books are loosely based on um, China, but it is world building. It is a, it is its own world. Um, it's it's one of those where it's you know it's 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 analogous to it, but it is not it. Um, so we'll get into the summaries in a minute. But as usual, I wanted to go over a few things. Um, cover a few things that you might need to know. Now, again, I'm going to do my best with the pronunciations, and I did actually go to YouTube and look up some of these words just to make sure that I'm getting as close as as I can, so I apologize uh, for any butchering that I do. Um, And again, as usual, my summary info is from uh, Wikipedia, but if you are curious, this should at least get you started. So the books... um, Liu has said that they are based loosely on the Chuhan contention that took place from 206 to 202 BC. Um, it was the interregnum between the Qin dynasty and the Han dynasty in Chinese history. Um, and from what the information says is that following the collapse of the Qin dynasty in 206 BC, Xiang Yu split the former Qin empire into the 18 kingdoms. Uh, two major contending powers emerged, Western Chu and Han, which engaged in a struggle for supremacy over China. Uh, Western Chu was led by Xiang Yu, while the, ha- the Han leader was Liu Bang. Several minor kings also warred, but these were largely independent of the main conflict between Western Chu and Han. The war ended in 202 BC with total victory for the Han, with Liu Bang soon proclaiming himself first emperor of the Han dynasty. I think it's Bang, B-A-N-G. I don't want to say bang and be horribly wrong. Um, in 221 BC, the Qin state unified China by conquering the other six major states and establishing the Qin dynasty. However, the oppressive and extremely unpopular dynasty lasted only 14 years. In 209 BC, Chen Sheng and Wu Guang started the, and I can't pronounce that, Dazhejiang uprising to overthrow the Qin dynasty. Um, although the uprising was crushed, several others erupted consecutively over the next three years. Uh, there were numerous pretenders to the former six states. And um, as with everything that we you know, read about in history, many wars and battles followed. And then finally, Xiang Yu divided up the former Qin Empire into vassals, the 18 kingdoms, and gave the puppet ruler King Huai II of Chu a more honorable title. And about a year later, Xiang Yu effectively sent the figurehead into exile and secretly ordered 
that he'd be assassinated on his way there. So that is a very, very, very brief summary of the Chu Han contention. Um, but that does give you an idea of what's happening in these books. Um, it is a massive fight over who should reign supreme. Like I said, it's, it's, it's the typical... It, I, I hate to say that because it makes it sound like the book is tropey and generic. It's not, but it, it's it's this, the typical story of any war. Um, everybody's fighting for supremacy, and somebody's got to come out on top, and that's what this one is based on. Now, something else that comes up in it, um, and that I found, something that I've always found interesting, um, turns out it's probably not true, but I always thought it was a fascinating um, anecdote, is the... At one time, I'd heard about this before, like I said, and then it was there was a brief mention of it in the book. Um, the burning of books and the burying of scholars. And that refers to supposed burning of texts in, two texts in 213 BCE and the live burial of 416 Confucian scholars in 210 BCE by the first emperor of the Qin Dynasty. Um, the event caused the loss of many philosophical treatises of the Hundred Schools of Thought, and the official philosophy of government survived. Now, recent scholars are doubting the details of the story. Um, the story is in the records of the Grand Historian. That's the main source. Um, the author, Sima Qian, wrote it a century or so after the events, and he was an official of the Han Dynasty. So, as with any, um, uh, as with any new monarchy, any new ruler, they're going to portray the previous rulers unfavorably. Now, um, from what this says, that it is clear that the first emperor did gather and destroy many works, which he regarded as subversive, but they were, um, two copies of each school were to be preserved in imperial libraries, but they were destroyed in the fighting following the dynasty, Uh, but it is now believed that there was likely an incident, but that they were not Confucians, and they were not buried alive. (laughs) Um, that was always one of those stories that struck me, though. I don't know if it's better that it didn't happen or, you know... If it's more meaningful that it, you know, if it had happened, I don't know. I just always found that one fascinating. The we've talked about before the burning, burying, and banning of of knowledge, of, of written knowledge, and of the living scholars who perpetuate and carry on and further that knowledge. It's the worst way to to get rid of knowledge. Is the worst way to stop it because you only make people want it more. Um, kind of like subversive books about sitting presidents that uh, are apparently packs of lies and yet are um, a lot of people are reading that book right now so you know maybe don't complain about it just ignore it completely because if you throw a big fit that means that there's something there moving on now in these books, there's two terms that I had not heard of before, and we'll get into those uh, in the second half of the show. Um, they, um, when we go into some of uh, Ken Liu's comments about his own work, but the first one, and I think the pronunciation is Wachia, which literally means martial heroes, and it's a genre of Chinese fiction concerning the adventures of martial artists in China. Um, it's traditionally a form of literature, but its popularity has caused it to spread into other art forms, such as Chinese opera, uh, films, television, video games, and it's part of the popular culture in many Chinese-speaking communities around the world. 
The word is a compound composed of the elements Wu, which literally is martial, military, or armed, and Xia, uh, literally honorable, chivalrous, or hero. Um, a martial artist who follows the code of Xia is often referred to as a Xiake, literally a follower of Xia, um, or a Yuxia, literally a wandering Xia. In some translations, the martial artist is referred to as a swordsman or swordswoman, even though he or she may not necessarily wield a sword. Um, the heroes in this type of fiction don't typically serve a lord. Uh, they wield military power or belong to an... Uh, let me back that up. They don't serve a lord, they don't wield any military power, and they don't belong to an aristocratic class. Um, they're usually the lower classes of the ancient Chinese society, and the code of chivalry requires them to right and redress wrongs. They fight for righteousness. They remove oppressors. They bring retribution for past misdeeds. Um, and their martial codes from other if you compare them to other cultures, what this list is the samurai's Bushido tradition. Um, but I guess the difference there would be, and it's my understanding that samurai did work for lords. They were more aristocratic classes. Um, they did wield military power, so there is a, their code, I guess, would be similar, but they came from a completely different class of society. Um, they're the underground hero, is the way that I, I read them. Um, not quite a Robin Hood, because Robin Hood, his code was different, but this is the same kind of idea. They, they help the helpless um, by... The nearest correlation that I can think of would be a masked superhero. Um, you know, somebody that doesn't want the fame. He just wants to help Daredevil, say, or something along those lines. Um, so that is my explanation of Wacha. And then the other one, which I had never heard of this before, and I think this is really fascinating, but it was also really weirdly hard to get information on it, is Chunyu... Um, C-H-U-A-N-Y-U-E It's time travel where the protagonist is transported to somewhere in the ancient times or in the future and the Chinese, this, this is a Chinese term that refers to a specific subgenre of time travel into the past to alter it. That is from a Gizmodo article by Ria Mizra from January 2015. Uh, that's the only place I could really find the information on this genre and I, it's I don't know. It sounds really, really cool. Um, definitely right up my alley. <laughs> so, moving on. Now we'll actually get into the books. Um, like I said, these books are massive. They are epic. Um, they clock in at almost a thousand pages each. There are a lot of moving parts to these books. A lot of people. A lot of ideas. Um... So, the first one, The Grace of Kings, it is an archipelago kingdom called Dara. And there are two men who are, um, they rebel together at first, but then, as is going to happen, that breaks apart. Um, they become rivals. And there is Kuniguru, who is the bandit. He's, you know, he is the Robin Hood type, uh, he's very charming. And then there is Matazindu, who actually is um, royalty. Royalty. He is the son of the deposed du- of a deposed duke, so he does actually have some claim to um, to a throne, to leadership. And these guys are very, very different. But when the um, uprising happens, as uprisings always happen, um, they become best friends. They 
fight against the conscripted conscripted armies together. And these books have silk-draped airships that are just amazing. And we'll get into the technology on those um, in the second half of the show. And there are also gods. These books are filled with uh, the gods. The gods are very active and involved in the lives of the people. They have their own personalities. They have traits and quirks and... Um, they are they are very busy working behind the scenes, um, mucking about as gods are wont to do. So once the emperor is overthrown, the two will find themselves um, on separate sides, separate factions, and they're going to have different ideas about how this new world should be run. Um, while they're fighting, that's one thing they can work together, but once the fighting is over and the you know, the job of government arises, they were raised very differently, and so that is going to, to be an issue. Um, these are definitely legendary figures. These are these are heroes. These are gods. These are warriors. Um, they are bigger than life. Like I said, it's a lot to keep up with, but it's, it's amazing. And then that is followed up with the Wall of Storms. Um, Kuni Guru is now emperor. Um, and there is an army that is coming to invade his kingdom, and he has to find a way to stop it. Um, he's now known as the Emperor Rogan, and he runs the archipelago kingdom, but he's got people that he has to answer to, and he's got a vision that he's trying to um, achieve, and it's harder than you know he thought it was going to be. And then an invading force comes in and... Everything goes into an uproar again. Um, Cooney can't go because he is trying to hold everything together. Um, so he sends his children, who are now grown, um, to face off against these new warriors. And the story starts to take the, the, the spin of... This is how the heroes emerge. This is how the stories are written. Um, every country, every dynasty, every kingdom, every presidency, everything they had, there's a foundational history. Um, you know, we have the founding fathers. We have the foundational history, the stories that we tell about the founding fathers. And then we know what we know about them. <laughs> and they're not so heroic. So this is how those stories um, get written and rewritten and the differing ideas that come together and clash over these new kingdoms and who is qualified um, to be the people of, in this case, the people of Dara. So there's just, it's hard to summarize because there is so, so much going on. There's so much. It's, uh, it's busy. But like I said, it's, they're very good and, the, the biggest things about these books, what struck me the most, what drew my attention and it held me was, by and large, it was the technology. Um, it was the, the different technology from what we're used to with steampunk. Um, and we will actually get into that more in the, the second half. Um, we're going to go into... Because the, I mean, these books do cover the usual uh, suspects of you know gender, um, gender typing and imperialism and all of that good stuff, but the technology and why this is different than what we usually look at as steampunk, um, that is what makes these books so special. So we're going to take another break. 
going to hear some words from some more friends. Um, hear some music, uh, doing something a little different this time with the music. And I think you'll like it. And then we will go on with the next part of the show. So I will be back with you guys in just a little bit. Portentous perils in the 23rd century. The year is 2217, and the fifth great steampunk revival chugs forever on. This month, we're all wearing VR goggles that perfectly recreate the actual vista in front of us, with the one alteration that now everybody is tipping a top hat in polite greeting. Join me as I recount my many adventures, gasp at the scientific know-how of my aunt, Dr. Erudition Synonym, respectfully at my terribly attractive fiancé, Happiness George, and shake your tiny fists at our evil nemesis, Professor Von Pun, and his beastly gentleman. Featuring Monkey Butlers. <laughs> this thrilling moment. Does anyone have any ketamine? I think I'm addicted to that now. This. Attention. This submarine for lesbians is being drawn to its doom. This hilarious character cameo from semi-retired national landmark Big Ben. Hans Zimmer. I am Hans Zimmer. And so much more. Ula, ula, I'm loving it. Ula, ula, I'm loving it indeed. Ask your iTunes or off-brand podcast provider to supply you with your free dose of portentous perils in the 23rd century today. If you enjoy it, tell your friends. If you don't enjoy it, well, tough. It's not all about you, Carol. We've just discovered a very rare bit of audio from former Prime Minister Winston Churchill. Let's have a listen. I, Winston Churchill, wholeheartedly believe that the Clockwork Cabaret is the finest example of steampunk radio programming. Never before have I heard anything quite so marvellous, and I doubt I shall ever hear anything like it again. Calpurnia, continue on your journey, broadcasting your marvellous music, and sail on to glory. If you would like to find out more about this programme, please check out clockworkcabaret.com or clockworkcabaret.podbean.com or follow us on Twitter at clockworkcabaret. That's C-L-O-C-K-W-R-K Cabaret.
this is Mike the Storycrafter from the Steamrollers Adventure Podcast. And I am Agent Copperstocking. You are not Agent Copperstocking. You're my clanker cohort and co-host, RBY2187. The name is Robbie, and thank you for ruining my top secret steampunk literary agent name. Can we just... Can we just get on with the bumper for Agent Blue Stocking, please? You are listening to the Steampunk Dollhouse. Get read your rights. We need to talk. What? Okay. So, Ken Liu, he does not call his books Steampunk. He does not... He, he prefers that they be called um, what he's, he's termed as Silk Punk because he... He feels that steampunk is based upon um, what he said is chrome and glass and steam, and that silk punk is based upon um, organic materials and biomechanics, in that all of the technologies are made of bamboo and silk and paper and coconut and leather, and they're powered by wind and water, um, muscle, oxen sinew, things that you're going to find in that part of the world. Or what is analogous to that part of the that is analogous to, um, it is completely divested from Victorian London and that that cultural idea. Um, so that's why he he prefers to to give it that name. And now, so the information, a lot of the information I'm using in this um, came from a couple of different sources. Um, one of the biggest sources that I'm using is, um, I've used it before, it's the Steampunk and 19th Century Digital Humanities by Roger Whitson. Uh, but there's also a couple of interviews that I read with Ken Liu um, that I'm pulling from, and the links for all of those will be in the notes, of course. Um, so what Whitson, when Whitson uh, interviewed Ken Liu for his book, and what he found is that... Um, Lou has a vision of technology that pulls together a more biological and organic system um, than what you usually see with steampunk. And so the way that his his machines operate is based on the natural order of things. It's based on things that you're going to find in nature, things that are all around um, in the sky and in the sea. And... He wanted to show that this kind of material, this kind of technology, um, could be achieved outside of that imperialist force, outside of uh, Victorian London. Um, And that's why, like I said, he calls it the silk punk, because the steampunk still does bring to mind that Anglo-American mindset. Um, We've talked about that before, that no matter how hard some of us are trying... For many people, steampunk will always be Victorian London. Um, It doesn't have to be. It doesn't need to be. And I think I've covered a lot of stuff that shows that it can be anywhere. But that idea is still deeply ingrained and embedded into steampunk for many, many people. And so Lou wanted to separate his his books from that and show a technology and a culture that is has risen separate from that um, the colonizing force, that imperialist force. So the technologies that he uses in the books are are wonderful. Um, 
And he wanted to, hang on just a second. He wanted to show a more, like I said before, a more organic connection. So the devices move, are, are powered by um, wind, they're powered by water, they're powered by the physical brute strength of, of people, of slaves. Um, so it is very organic. And I know we've talked, I've talked before about steampunk and how, you know, it becomes a almost an organic concept in many of the stories, you know, with the boilers and the spitting and the steam and the smoking and they're right there in your face. But in his books, it is completely organic. That is where everything comes from. It is not, um, not industrialized at all. And so he wanted to, what's a lot of the stuff that he uses, um, it is, you know, it is fantasy technology. It is, it is not real, but, much like Sherry Priest went to um, the U.S. Pat- or went to through the patents and found devices, these amazing devices from the 1800s, and used those for her books. He uh, Ken Liu went into um, East Asian antiquity. He went into history. He went into the old records to find, you know, creations to find illustrations and ideas and descriptions and. To put together, and what we end up with is, um, I'm going to read the description of the airship because I, instead of summarizing it, I'm just going to read it for you because these airships are amazing. So, the airships that he has in his books, um, giant hoops and longitudinal girders made of bamboo formed the semi-rigid skeleton of the airships. Within this frame, silk gas bags were hung. These would be filled with the lift gas collected from Lake Daco. The gas bags were also girded with a network of ropes that could be winched from the gondola so that their volume could be contracted or expanded to change the amount of lift. When the bags were compressed, the pressurized lift gas took up less volume, resulting in less buoyancy. When the bags were allowed to expand, the lift gas took up more volume, resulting in more buoyancy. The entire frame was then covered with a layer of lacquered cloth to provide protection from enemy arrows. Inside, along both sides of the airbags, were seats for the engine crew, Men conscripted, mostly conscripted men, little better than slaves, who would row the giant wings that propelled the airships through the sky. These wings were made from the molted feathers of the Mingan falcons, which were light, strong, and pushed hard against the air. So this whole ship is completely organic. It is completely natural. It is completely Asian, um, even down to the description of you know, the lacquered cloth uh, that is providing protection from the arrows and the bamboo and the lift gas collected from the lake, um, which actually, if you remember uh, when we covered the CSRs, um, similar, there were similar um, machines that were used using that gas collected from the ground. Um, it's not gas that's produced. It's not, you know, it, it's gas that's, it's, pulled directly from nature up into the gas bags and used that way. Um, and the descriptions of these, I mean, they're just, they're gorgeous. I, I would love to see this, if not a full live-action movie, then at the very least a really, really, really well-done cartoon or an anime. It's just, they're so beautiful. Um, and even um, one of the other uh, pieces of technology that's used um, they say there when he const- when you constructed your sunscope, you borrowed a mil- borrowed a mirror's ability to reflect light. 
the bamboo pole's resilience and flexibility, and the banana leaf's smooth surface, and combine them to do something that had never been done before. Engineering is the art of solving problems by combining existing machines into new machines, and harnessing the effects of the submachines to accomplish a novel effect. This is true whether you're a fisherman weaving nets out of ropes and weights, a blacksmith hammering and shaping a plow or an anvil, or a cooper making a barrel from staves and hoops. And that one is from Wall of Storms. And I like the way he phrases that. Um, when you borrowed, you borrowed the mirror's ability, you borrowed the bamboo's resiliency, you borrowed the banana leaf surface, you didn't take them, you didn't harvest them out of nature you borrowed them with the idea that you're going to give something back and I love that idea I think it's beautiful Uh, so that is what makes his to me what makes it so important um, is that it is this is that that punk um, that is separated completely from Victorian England, and yet I do still feel like it does fall into the category of steampunk. For me, it does fall into the category of steampunk. Um, it's the same. I, it's hard for me to explain why. A lot of times it's just a feeling for me. Um, but I also understand why Ken Liu wants to give it something separate because he wants to define that technology and that culture. He wants to define it as being something separate, and I can absolutely understand why he would want to do that. Um, but it's a beautiful, beautiful way to do it. And um, this is also where the wuxia and the Chuan Yu novels, this is where this idea comes in, is that this is supposed to be um, an homage to those novels And what he says is incorporating concepts that we think of as modern into um, this historical setting. And what he's, um, and this is out of Whitson again, um, or is it out of Whitson or one of the interviews? I read so much for these books. Um, What he says is the cultural differences between the Anglo-American steampunk and the wuxia and the Xuan Yu genres in Chinese fiction help explain why he is reluctant to identify his work as steampunk. Um, the wuxia and the chuanyo give silk punk an entirely different tradition of cultural techniques distinct from Victorian British literature or Anglo-American science fiction to construct counterfactual forms of technology. So he wants it separated. He wants it pulled apart. Um, he wants to show that this was done completely, that this technology, this, the capabilities for this technology were there without that imperialist influence, without that, um, without the white savior coming in and giving their technologies to be borrowed and changed and updated, that this was completely organic and natural and rose out of this culture. And that is so incredibly important. Um, and yet, like I said, I still, I'll still, I'll still, not that I, I'm still going to classify it as steampunk. It's not that. It's just that it still hits that same note for me. It still hits that same excitement and that same joy of airships and amazing technologies and um, absolute and remarkable creativity. It still hits the same notes. Um, and so for me, it still falls into 
that same idea. Um, it's and it's it was steampunk, and, we, and this has been discussed before. We've talked about this before that it's not up to it's not for me or for anyone to say what steampunk definitely is or definitely isn't. Um, and it's also not for me to say that, well, this, I say this book is steampunk when the author says it's not. I'm not going to do that. It hits the right notes for me. Uh, it, it, it hits the same area that all of the other books that I've covered have. It rings the same bells. Um, but Ken Liu wants it called silk punk, and so we are going to go with what he says that these are silk punk. Um, but again, like I said, if you like... The books that I've discussed before and you like steampunk, then you're going to like these because they do ring the same notes, um, the same excitement and the same joy. Um, now, the other, I feel like I'm not doing these books justice, but again, it, it is hard because they are so long and there is so much going on. Uh, but some of the other notes that I wanted to cover in here, um, some of the things that he, he included now within everybody I think everybody knows what the Great Wall of China is. Everyone is at least marginally familiar with the Great Wall. Um, I would hope you're more familiar with it, but it's the Great Big Wall <laughs> that goes across China. It wasn't built all at one time. It was built over over a very, very, very long period of time. Um, now, within um, the Dandelion Dynasty, they are instead, because this is, again, this is an archipelago, this is islands, so within this series it's not a great wall instead they are undersea tunnels to connect the islands but the tunnels are built by slaves that have been conscripted from the male citizens and they are basically chained underground in the dark and they dig and they dig and they dig and they die and they are replaced and they dig and i was looking up um, because i know that i don't the great wall is one of the things that's been around for so long and there's so many stories nobody knows it exactly all of the details but what i found um the most reasonable number they'd have found was that 500 at least 500,000 plus had died in the making of the wall and that's not just the men i mean these walls were mass the, the wall was a massive undertaking and it was a lifelong project for some people it was a lifelong slavery for some people and that was you know their families were with them and their children and their wives in almost like camps and little towns because of the way that the walls were created. So that's these undersea tunnels within uh, the Dandelion Dynasty, within Dara, are are very similar to that. And as I was going through and I was reading, you know, as we read about the the slaves and the poor and uh, the the people that are, are... at the lower rungs of society, and something that he said, um, there's a couple of things, and um, one of them's from, this is from the Grace of Kings, um, it was, they were not mean in their nature, but made mean by the meanness of their rulers. The poor were willing to endure much, but the emperor had taken everything from them. Um, and I think that we don't always think about, well, I know, <laughs> having been, been on food stamps and judged thusly for that, um, I know that we don't always think about how we view people that have less than us. We see their situation, you know, um, at a glance, and we just we make assumptions, uh, especially if they are of a different color, especially if they are of a different race, if they're of a different religion, if they're whatever 
different educational background, we immediately make assumptions and judgments about how they got into that situation to begin with. And I can tell you, nobody is poor because they want to be poor. Um, You know what? I'll take... Maybe there are a few people. um, For the most part, people aren't poor because they want to be poor. They are not in those situations because they want to be in the situation. Something has happened. And whether it is their fault or not, it sucks. And compassion is needed and necessary um, because sometimes it is their fault. I was poor through every fault of my own. I made terrible decisions. But there are people who have just had shit handed to them from beginning to end and are doing the best they can. And we need to remember that. And so much of you know, the, the people that end up at the you know the bottom of the pile through no fault of their own it can generally be traced back to the rulers and the leaders and the politicians and the bad decisions that are being made like bad decisions that are being made now here in America um and the poor in America have endured much and our leaders continue to take much from them. But in the Wall of Storms, there was another thing, another line that struck me when he said, um, what courage it took for the starving and the poor to continue the mere act of existence, of survival, of endurance. Such quiet acts of heroism were not celebrated, and yet they made up the foundation of civilization, far more than all the honorable sentiments of the Anno sages and the pretty words of the nobles. And that, to me, I think is such an important paragraph, such an important section. Because, again, we, we see the poor. We see them every day. Everybody sees them, whether you realize it always or not. You see them every day. And you don't, when you, when you are in and have always been in a place of comfort and security and stability, where living your life is not a matter of... It's not in question. Things just are the way they are, and you don't have to worry. You you never have to worry about your place in life. When you are poor, just getting through each day is a struggle. Just getting through and making it and... For some people, the single mother who is, you know, raising two children on a fast food salary because that's what she's got and she has to be on food stamps and she's still doing everything she can to give her children the best life that she possibly can. That's a hero. That is a hero. And to say that, you know, it is her fault because she had the two children and wasn't married or she didn't get an education so she has to work at McDonald's. No, it, it doesn't work that way. You don't get to judge other people like that. You just don't because you don't know their stories. And your lived experience is not the same as the lived experience of anyone else in this world. We all have had different experiences. And some people buy dint of birth will have had a worse experience than you or harder or more difficult or just different. So you don't get to judge. You don't get to judge that single mother who works at McDonald's and is on food stamps and trying to give her children the best life that she can. That's not your place because you haven't lived her life. So it is heroic. 
and we don't say that enough and we don't see it enough. And it's something that we need to keep in mind and that we need to remember. Um, one of the other uh, things that he does handle in this, um, interestingly, is colonialism and assimilation within um, the islands of Dara and uh, what's happening with the different warring factions and, and you know, this invading army that's coming in. Um, and one of the, one of the uh, lines that struck me from that was, the sights that greeted him depressed him. The empire had been able to get its fingers into every nook and cranny of life in Old Han. The people were now used to riding in the Zana way, dressing after the imperial fashion and imitating the accents of the conquerors. And that, that assimilation, that is... That is key. That is a targeted and very effective tool of the colonial of, of the colonizer. Um, we saw it here in America with the the Indian schools. Um, with the Native Americans were taken from their tribes and their families and their homes, usually the boys, uh, but the girls too, and sent to quote unquote schools, Christian schools. Um, or heathen schools. Uh, we actually uh, read a book in my final undergrad history class. Um, we read a book called The Heathen School. I can't remember the author's name now. But it was about uh, not just the Native Americans, but the Hawaiian Islanders and um, quote-unquote savages and barbarians from other parts of the world that were sent to school here in America um, to be civilized and to learn English and to write and speak in English and learn the Bible and, you know, wear pants. and uh, But America is not the only one that did that. Um, we had, you know, the British schools in India. Hell, um, Wales in the 19th century. I, I, and I looked it up to make sure um, it wasn't that Welsh was outlawed in schools um, in Wales in the 19th century. But it was strongly, strongly discouraged. Um, and there was something called a Welsh knot. It was a symbol. It was like a, a, a wooden symbol that they had to wear around their necks um, for speaking Welsh in school. Um, so it's, it's happened everywhere. It's the culture of the conqueror and the, you know, if this is what you do. This is, this is the way that you get them to fall in line the quickest um, is to stamp your culture right on top of theirs, take away their language, take away their lore, take away their history. In the, the, you know, in the case of the Native Americans, take away their hair, take away everything that they have and everything that they are, and you will get them to assimilate quicker. The, <laughs> the problem being, as we have seen time and time again, is that they don't like that and that there will be... There will be... Retribution. There will be resistance, you know. I mean, and that's. I think that's one thing that always kills me about the British is because the, the British people themselves, the the earliest, the original, they were colonized and you know trod upon by the Romans, and they fought so hard and they fought back. And a thousand years later, not even a thousand, you know, five hundred some odd years later, they're doing the same thing all over the world, and it just. It never changes. It never. It never ends. And maybe it will now. I mean, everything we've stomped all over everything that we can, and maybe it will end now. But 
we never ever learn. So he does he does cover that in um, this as well, but again from a completely different viewpoint. Um, there's almost nothing to say about LGBTQ issues in this because it's handled so matter of factly. It in fact because I was listening to the audiobook and it passed before I realized what had happened that there was a, one of the soldiers was interested in another one and you know was going to go speak to him and they were trying to hook him up and so it, it's just it's handled as it is what it is. Um, it's not something extraordinary. It's not something that needs to be highlighted. It just, it's part of this universe and this world. Uh, and I like the way that he handled that. They're not extraordinary. They're just people like everybody else. And that's, that needs to happen more often as well. Um, now, as far as the women's roles, there, there are multiple women in multiple roles within these books. But the one that fascinated me the most, um, and she's really, I mean, comparatively speaking, she's not in it very long, but Kikome, she is, uh, I guess she's she's analogous to a princess. She's royalty. She is beautiful, but she, Kikome kind of is, she's one of those very, very beautiful, high-born women who much is expected of, and she is, I don't want to say that she's a blank slate, but she is, she bears what is placed upon her by the men that want to control her and control things through her. And um, there's a couple of things that she says or that that are said about her, um, one of which is she understood that whatever else symbols did, they did not sigh and complain about their fate. And Kikame knew that she was a symbol. She knew that that's what she was because of her kingdom and what had happened. As a child, she ran and played with the others and swam and, you know... It was as rowdy as all the others, but as she got older and she got more beautiful and she was pulled back and kept inside and turned into an object, uh, she would be a symbol for her people, um, something that they could look to. And the thing that struck me the most was when she said, must a beautiful woman always be a seducer, a harlot? A mere bauble put on display as a distraction. Is that the only path open to me? And the woman that she's speaking to says, those are the labels men have put on women. And that struck me more than anything because that is, think about it. How many times have you seen the femme fatale from the old noir movies or um, Salome with the head of, you know, demanding the head of John the Baptist from her lascivious stepfather? Um and to a lesser extent, Judith and Holofernes. Um, although in that instance, Judith was was the seducer, but she also she also she served as the seducer, but she also served as the the, the engine of, of punishment and vengeance. Um, if you don't know that story, look up Judith and Holofernes. Um, the painting by Caravaggio is <laughs> spectacular. Um, so women. So often, and even now, even in books now, women are not, as I said, the engines of that, that drives it. They are there merely to be the distraction, to, to, to do the seducing so that 
the events that need to take place can then take place while the man that needed to be seduced is in their bed. Um, they serve no other function, and that happens in so many books and so many movies, and it always has. It's, I mean, going back a very long way, it's been like this. And for Kiko May, she'll end up taking a different path. Um, her story, like I said, it's, it's not a long one. Um, but she... I liked her. Um, she did the best she could with what she was born with, um, and she did. She took she took matters into her hands the best that she could. Um, but there are, are actually uh, quite a few women in these books that have uh, really amazing roles. Um, and I think as I'm coming down to the end of it, um, I always think I'm not going to have enough to talk about, and then I ramble for half an hour. Um, as I said, this this book does these books do cover the usual suspects that we like to talk about, but the most important aspect to it for me is the technology, is the technology that is devoid of all British, all Anglo, all Western influence, and it is beautiful and it is the things that he cre- you can tell sometimes when a writer comes from that technological background. You could definitely also tell that he's a lawyer, just from some of the writing. But it's beautiful, and it's well done, and it's it needs to be added to the canons. It needs to be added to the lists. Again, um, at his own request, at his own preference, um, Ken Liu prefers silk punk, not steampunk. And there are he has very valid reasons why, um, and I completely, completely respect that. But it does, for me, it does, it does check all the boxes that I look for, and it does tug the heartstrings and, you know, thump the, the sections of my brain that light up uh, with these kinds of stories. And maybe it's just because of the technology and the adventure and the epic, and I don't know. But it is, it is very good. They are long. Um, they are very in-depth. As I said before, there's a lot of moving parts, but they are worth it. Um, and I don't, I couldn't find any information on when the third one will come out, but I know that there is an arc. Uh, the interviews that I was reading from him, there is a definite arc that he's going for. Uh, and those interviews, again, I did include the links for those in the show notes, so you can go uh, read a little bit about him. And, you know, the, the section that's in the steampunk and 19th century digital humanities about him. Um, he's a fascinating dude, and... Uh, I, I do you know suggest looking into him a little bit more and reading some of his other stories because he has <laughs> the list of short stories is is impressive. Um, he's very good. He is very talented. We are very lucky to uh, have his voice, and we're very. I'm very fortunate that he added his voice to this particular uh, section of science fiction fantasy world. So that is. The Dandelion Dynasty series by Ken Liu. Um, Go get it. Go read it. Go listen to it. Enjoy it. And uh, find me. Tell me what you think. Do you have foreign engineers building your railroads? No, yao. Foreign bankers holding your debt? No, yao. Foreign gunboats in your harbor? (laughs) Then you need Mohammedan and Salaspi. Chartered purveyors of bespoke modernities since October 18, 1816. We know Reaper Drone is the new Gatling gun. We know Intermodal Cargo Container is the new Opium Chest. 
We know the early 21st century is in the late 19th, and we are here to modernificate you against it. So, delay no more. Visit us in the intertubes at www.mohammedanandcelestial.com. At Mohammedan and Celestial, when we hear the great powers invoke civilization, we chamber around in our C96 on your behalf. If you like what we've done here, please don't forget to rate and review us on iTunes. Even if you don't use iTunes to listen, you can still rate and review as long as you have an iTunes account. Your opinion matters, and it does have an impact on how many people can find us. I would also like to say a very special thank you to Cindy at StoryPunks for her recent review. It blew me away, and it was very lovely. Thank you. I also want to gently remind you guys that I do have a Patreon. Please remember that this is largely a one-woman show. And even for something as simple as what I'm doing, it does get expensive. Um, I don't know how many regular listeners that I have, but even if just 10 of you donated a dollar a month, that would ensure that we could be supplied with lots of really good stuff for months to come. And I think you'll get some pretty cool items for your patronage. Um, And your patronage will ensure that we have some cool shit to sell that for those that prefer not to do a monthly thing. And my ability to do that depends on you, and the library depends on you. And in that regard, I would like to say a very special thank you to Brian G. for your recent patronage. Your support means more than you can know. And with that, we're done. We'll see you in two weeks for Disruption Junction, What's Your Function? Or Why Xenophobia Always Leads to a Bad End with S.E. Grove's The Mapmakers Trilogy. The Steampunk Dollhouse is a Wind Up Girl Studios production and bears a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 4.0 International License. It is written and produced by Elizabeth Hedrick. Production assistance, artwork, and moral support provided by Matt Davis. Additional assistance provided by Josephine Davis, who used to think she was a goth kid, but now she's totally a steampunk girl. Our intro music is Baby I'm Not Your Lady by Sing and Sadie. Our exit music is Goodnight by the Knickerbocker Quartet. These songs can be found at the freemusicarchive.org. All episode sound effects can be found at freesound.org. For complete attribution, see the show notes or visit our website at spdhpod.com. Being threatened with lawsuits because you published a book that probably doesn't detail even half of the shenanigans going on in the Big White House? Contact us for assistance at steampunkdollhouse at gmail.com or on Facebook and Twitter at SPDHPod. And finally, we thank you for tuning in. I'll keep reading your rights for as long as you keep listening. Blue Stocking Out. Admits. Flannels. Socks.